If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we, as we ask the question, why do we have a vision and a mission statement, Lord, that is such a huge question. I pray that you would, you would dig down deep in our hearts, God, and you would implant your vision and your mission in us. Lord, if we don't understand what you are doing in your creation, throughout history, in all of the universe, then we, then we have no vision. We have no mission. Our lives are just lived from urge to urge. So God, I pray that we would understand your vision and your mission this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I can still remember the exact moment. I was either four or five years old. I was kneeling in front of the couch with my brother at my side. My father was leading us in a prayer, a prayer of salvation, where I confessed that I was a sinner and asked Jesus to come into my life and save me so that I could go to heaven and be with him when I died. I remember that very moment. I remember the color of the couch. I remember growing up and spending my entire childhood assuming that I was a Christian and going to heaven when I die because of that one moment in time. Whenever I began to doubt my salvation or think that there might be something more to being a Christian, I just thought back to that one moment when I prayed that prayer. And that erased all my doubts, all my fears. After all, I'd been told I was eternally secure. Christ died for me. I accepted his offer of salvation. I prayed the prayer. And that is, after all, all it takes. But, as I grew older and got into junior high and then high school, the true condition of my heart began to show up more and more. The fact was that I had no desire to please God. Christ was not my Lord. And he was not my Savior. I was content to claim Christ as long as he protected me from hell, but no farther. I had no desire to, to put my sin to death. I had no desire to live a life of worship and sacrifice. I had no desire to give up my own ambitions and service to others. And I had no concept of what it meant to live for the glory of God. In fact, throughout most of my teenage years, I spent almost every waking hour trying to think of ways to gain glory for myself. I played sports to gain glory for myself. I learned music. I learned how to play guitar in order to impress others. And because I idolized rock stars, 
I dressed and worked on my appearance in a way that drew attention to myself. I projected a certain attitude about school and life that I thought would gain the approval of others. I kept up the image that I was a good Christian boy, even though I knew my heart was full of lust, greed, and wickedness. I played the church game every Sunday. I even led the music at my church and successfully convinced everyone around me that I had everything together. I intentionally went out of my way to get involved in illegal and licentious activities on the weekends and then showing up to church on Sunday morning like everything was okay. You see, I was not converted. I prayed a prayer. I'd repeated a mantra, but my heart was not changed. My desires were not transformed. I was still dead in my sins. I even went to church camps every summer. Not in order to learn the truths of the gospel or to grow in my love for Christ, but because there were cute girls there that I thought I would hopefully be able to impress. Until the summer before my senior year. I went to the same summer camp that I had been to the, to the past three years, and it was there, this year, the summer of 1999, that God finally opened my eyes. I showed up to the summer camp completely broken and convicted of my sin. I knew that I was a hypocrite and a liar and a fake. And I knew that God was not going to let me live a contradiction anymore. You see, the Spirit of God was already working on my heart. He was hovering. As in Genesis 1, hovering over the emptiness. As I heard the preaching the first night of that camp, my heart was transformed. I saw Jesus in a way I'd never seen him before. I understood myself to be utterly cut off from God with no hope in the world apart from Christ. And it was that night that I was saved. But years later, thinking back on that experience, you know what is amazing to me? What's amazing to me about that night was the fact that the sermon the preacher preached had almost nothing to do with me. In fact, there seemed to be a reluctance on the part of the preacher to even encourage some kind of response on my part. In fact, not only was the sermon not really about me or my response, it was actually about what God is pleased to do in his creation, despite my response to him. The message was simply this. Everything God does, ultimately he does for his own glory. That's the message that changed my heart. Now, there are lots of reasons why God does anything. Millions even. But the ultimate, deepest, most profound reason why He does anything is so that He might be recognized for who He truly is. The most supreme being in all the universe. And that He is worshipped on that basis. From that night on, my life has taken a completely different trajectory. That was the night that I was saved. You see, the Bible screams of God's glory. Think with me in these passages. God created us for His glory. Now this thing isn't going to work. There it is. Isaiah 43, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
You're created for God's glory. God called Israel for his glory. For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God defeated Pharaoh to show his glory. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God gave Israel victory in battle. As they took the promised land for his glory. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things. By driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. God restored Israel from exile for his glory. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness. Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus told us to do good works for the glory of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus answers prayer to glorify God. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. God put Jesus forward to demonstrate his own righteousness. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God forgives our sin for his own glory. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my, name, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. God tells us to, to do everything we do for his glory, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And last, Jesus is coming again so that God will be glorified. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Come on. And from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So what's the point? What am I saying? I'm saying that the night that I was saved, the message had almost nothing to do with me. It was all about God's purposes for himself. 
The fact that God created us for His glory. He saves us for His glory. He's coming again for His own glory. You see, my entire life, for the first 16 or 17 years, I thought of my Christian faith all in terms of myself. And it wasn't until someone finally preached to me, or I'm sure it was preached to me before, it just never clicked. It wasn't until I finally understood that this universe doesn't center around me. And how arrogant I am to think that this God who created everything for his glory, that I can just choose or not choose to follow him as if his plan and his purpose is dependent upon my response to him. That was the message that saved me. That is what humbled me. See, I'd heard the gospel over and over and over again. But it wasn't until I caught a glimpse of the vision of God where I finally understood my place, my place in it. And I sat there that night and I wept. Because I'd wasted, I'd wasted 17 years of my life. My point is this, God has a vision. God has a vision statement. Everything God does has a purpose. Nothing in creation happens by accident or chance. From the moving of a molecule to the moving of a mountain, God determines it. From the falling of a leaf to the falling of nations, God decides Everything that happens in the universe happens because God has designed it to happen. The fact that there is order in creation testifies to the fact that there is purpose behind everything that exists. There is no such thing as a random act of God. The Bible screams of purpose. Everywhere you turn, you see explicit and implicit statements about God's purposes in creation and redemption. We know God's purposes because He tells us His purpose all over the place. His purpose is to glorify Himself. God has a vision to be glorified by His people. But how does God accomplish this purpose? If it's God's desire that he be glorified, why doesn't he just command us to be glorified and then destroy us when we don't? Wouldn't it be much more expedient to just demand worship and praise and then strike down everyone who failed, up to, failed to live up to that expectation? We see, God doesn't make us love him for the same reason that a husband or a wife doesn't make his or her spouse love them. No one wants to be loved by someone because they've been forced to do so. No wife wants to be told by her husband, I love you because it's my duty. Instead, the wife wants her husband's heart. The husband wants his wife's heart. He longs to have our hearts. God longs to have our hearts, not just spiritual duties. But you see, God has a dilemma. There's a problem here, isn't there? The problem is that our hearts are wicked and deceitful and naturally do not want to love God. 
We don't want to give God glory. If God's purposes in creation is to be glorified, to be marveled at, then there's a problem. Because no one marvels at God. No one glorifies God. That passage we read earlier, all about the wickedness and sinfulness of man. No one seeks after God. Our hearts have all turned away. We want... We don't want to live our lives in order to make Him look glorious and all satisfying. We want to live our lives for our own glory, to make a name for ourselves. This is the problem. God wants our hearts, but our hearts are wicked. Therefore, we need new hearts. So if God's vision in all creation is to be glorified, then He has a serious problem. His own creatures have rebelled against Him and in fact hate Him. He is not recognized for who he is. He is maligned, reviled, despised, and rejected. It looks like his purposes have failed, and he'd better scrap the whole thing and start over. But he hasn't. And he won't. Because he's on a mission. God doesn't just have a vision, he's on a mission. God knows the hearts of his creatures, he knows we need new hearts. And he knew how he'd save us before we fell dead in the garden. That brings us to Romans 15, 8. The passage we read earlier. Let's read it again. Romans 15, starting in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. For his mercy. We could go to any number of passages in the New Testament that talk about God's mission or, or why Christ came. But I chose this one because it connects not only, uh, it tells us not only God's mission or God's vision to be glorified, but it tells us how he's aiming to do it. Verse 8 For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who are the circumcised? The Jews, right? Christ came to be a servant to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. What does that mean? Why did Christ have to come and show God's truthfulness? Well, because God had made all kinds of crazy promises to his people. In the Old Testament, you have, you have all of these promises of God. Who's, God's going to send a deliverer. God is going to um, bring someone who is going to finally deliver his people. And, and you see in the Old Testament how um, Moses comes and he leads his people out, God's people out of Egypt. And then, but things just aren't quite right. God's people still fail. God's people still rebel against him. And then God establishes the promised land and raises up judges. And eventually they ask for a king and God raises up David. And so through the period of judges and David and then king after king... And then these kings come, come to the throne, but over and over and over again, we see that God's people still rebel against him. And it seems like God's promises just are not being fulfilled. There's always this promise of something happening later. Someone else is going to come. There's going to be a new deliverer. Christ came and lived under the law and served his fellow Jews. Because if he didn't, God would be a liar. The next verse tells us, he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. When you go back and you read the Old Testament, you see over and over these promises that God gives to, to redeem His people, to restore them, to gather them. You get to the end of the Old Testament and you're like, they're in exile. They prophet after prophet just, just raining down judgment on God's people. And you're like, this is it? This? This is the end? This is God's fulfillment? Christ came. In order uh, to show God's truthfulness. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God promises a savior to bring salvation. He promised a deliverer to bring deliverance. And he promised a king to establish his kingdom. And when Christ comes, he fulfills them all. But he does so in a way that no one was ever expecting. He delivers his people by being perfectly obedient to his heavenly father. He saves his people by taking their sins upon himself as he is brutally murdered on a cross. He shows himself to be the king of the universe by being raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all his creation. You see, Christ came. God sent Christ. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So there's two parts to this. Christ comes, he comes as a Jew to live under the law. He comes to redeem his people first. But also, there's now a new mission. God is not only just interested in gathering His chosen people to Himself like He was in the Old Testament, but rather, there's a message that's now going out. The, the focus is not for the nations to come to Israel. Rather, the focus is now Israel is meant to go out to the nations in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercies. All of these saving benefits are now made available to the Gentiles. God's mission is to gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into one fold, under one Lord, united in one faith for the purpose of glorifying the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the mission of God. So we see, and this is very condensed, we could spend hours and sermons and sermons on the vision and mission of God. But we see just from the general uh, purpose of the Bible that God, has a vision, that God has a vision and that God has a mission. There's a plan. Everything in creation is meant to accomplish God's purposes. All of human history is pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that happens in the universe is meant to happen so that Christ might be seen as the greatest hope for all mankind, so that His people would turn to Him in worship and obedience. So we see that God has a mission to redeem His elect people through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God has a vision to glorify Himself. We see this clearly in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9 and following. We see it all over the place. The entire New Testament points us 
to one purpose, or one person, the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm asking the question this morning, why do we at Redeemer Church have a vision and a mission statement? And I haven't really answered it to this point, but I hope that the answer is clear. We have a vision and a mission statement because God has a vision and a mission. Right? And we see all over God's vision and God's mission and all that He does. Our vision statement at Redeemer Church, because we exist to exalt Christ, there's glory, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. That's our vision statement. Our mission statement, our mission at Redeemer Church is to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. The way these function... Our vision is kind of our goal. Like, this is what we foresee. This is what we want to happen, right? This is kind of our vision for the future. Our mission is how are we going to accomplish this? What are we going to do day in and day out in order to see our vision actually come to reality? Our mission is to build, to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. So let me just ask you some questions. Is your life marked by the glory of God? We have a vision and a mission statement because God has a vision and a mission. God's vision is that He be glorified. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language gathered around His throne, worshiping Him. Is your life marked by the glory of God? Does the fact that God does everything for His own glory encourage you? Or enrage you. Knowing that God does everything for his own glory. Doesn't that bring you comfort? Or does it bring you contempt? Do you hate the fact that God does everything for his own glory? Is your life marked by the glory of God? Those of you who claim to be followers of Christ. What would others say is your purpose or aim in all that you do? Is there a sense of weightiness to your life? What comes out of your mouth? Words of fluffiness, lightness, superficiality. How often is the gospel on your lips? How often is the goodness of God on your lips? What do you talk about? Man, if, if, if we could just have a recorder with us all day, and we had to record everything you said, and then play it back at the end of the day, what do you think others would say about what is most important to you? Is your life marked by the glory of God? I've been very convicted of this recently. Spending this past week at the, the Together for the Gospel Conference, just an amazing time with, uh, with friends, with fellow believers, guys from this church. Um, and just hearing the, just the word brought and, and just power and authority. And I would say if there's one overarching um, 
conviction that I've had this week, and there's been many, many, many convictions, but I would say in a general sense, if I had to sum it all up for my life this week, God is just rocking my world because of this right here. My life is not marked by the glory of God. I'm so quick to joke and to have fun and to keep things light and fluffy in my conversations because I know that people enjoy that. And I think of like the people I work with and, and people like me there. I'm a liked person at work. But you know why people like me? It's not because I serve them or I go out of my way to help. It's because I'm fun and funny and and I just kind of come in and tell a joke and run out and and it's just there's just no serious to my life there's no weightiness is my life is not marked by the glory of God it's why does it take so much work for me so much effort to speak about the things of God so I just want to ask you is your life marked by the glory of God. Is everything that you do done with the purpose and the aim to bring glory to Christ? Or is it to, to bring glory to yourself? The second question I want to ask is, where do you stand in relation to Christ? If everything God does is meant to bring glory to Jesus, are you bringing glory to Jesus? Do you live your life in a way that makes Jesus look supreme and all-satisfying? And that starts with your relation to Christ. Some of you here this morning may be in the same position that I was in in the summer of 1999. Going through most of your life thinking that you're a Christian. Thinking that you are united with Christ because you prayed a prayer when you were a little boy or a little girl like I did. When in fact, everything in your life up to this point has just been screaming, me, 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 my purpose, my mission, my goals. Where do you stand in relation to Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? Do you submit to His leadership? Do, you, do your purposes and your aims come under the umbrella of Christ's purpose and Christ's aims? Do you live your life in a way that makes Jesus look supreme and all-satisfying? The third question I want to ask is, how are you joining God in His mission to bring glory to Himself through transforming hearts through the proclamation of the Gospel? If this is the mission of God, to gather people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, how are you joining God in that mission? Are you neglecting the local church? It's a very practical question. Are you neglecting the local church? When you read the New Testament, you read Paul's letters, you can't make sense of those letters unless they're read within the context of a local church. Everything in the New Testament, like most of the New Testament would make no sense unless you're involved in a local church. Are you neglecting the local church? And if you are, 
You are neglecting God's vision and God's mission because God aims to use His church to accomplish His mission. Are you neglecting the local church? Are you failing to share your faith with others? Is your speech marked by the gospel? Are you joining God in His mission to bring glory to Himself through transforming hearts through the proclamation of the gospel? The fourth question I want to ask, the last question is this. Have you been spending huge amounts of time thinking and worrying about your future? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to work? Who will I marry? And I ask this question because a lot of us are college students. So this is a very transitional time for, for many of you. You're always, at least I was this way in college, I was always thinking about the next step, right? Graduation. And then after graduation, there's, you know, what's next? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to marry? Uh, how many kids am I going to have? How much money am I going to make? What kind of house am I going to buy? Uh, what kind of car am I going to drive? All of these questions, they're always future-oriented. Like we're always looking forward to something better than, than the situation that we're in now. And if this is you, maybe you find those questions so perplexing because you've forgotten that right here and right now you are meant to live for the glory of Christ. Maybe we spend so much time worrying about the future and all of those questions because we really haven't grasped the vision and the mission of God. I'm not saying that, that just understanding these things is going to solve all of your problems and, and answer all of your questions. But understanding our place in God's mission and God's purposes for all of his creation, that's essential, guys. That is absolutely essential. I think of, of my own life and, and how quick I am to, to always assume the grass might be greener somewhere else. You know, I'm working hard here. I'm working a lot at a, you know, quote, secular job. I don't get to do the, some of the things I want to do with, with Redeemer. I have all these hopes and ambitions. And then, aside from all those, those good things, over here, like, I have even stupid things that I want to do. Like, man, I want to go back to school. And I want to get another degree. I want to study this. I want to study that. I want to, I want to get my pilot's license. Like, pilot's license? What? Who needs a pilot license? It's just one of those things like, oh, that's, I think that'd be really cool to do. And so I think about that kind of stuff all the time. Or I want to live here. I want to live there. There's no water around here. I want to live close to water. There's no woods around here. I want to live close to the woods, you know? I can go camping and, and do all this really cool stuff that I think I would be really good at. But, um, but the fact is, this is like the grass is always greener, right? The grass is always greener. Because if we move to the ocean, surrounded by a bunch of woods, I don't know how that's possible, but if we move there, then I'm going to start thinking, man, I wonder if the grass is greener over here. Because you see, I'm failing to remember God's vision and God's mission. At that, in those situations, at those moments, I am only thinking about what I want, my desires. And I'm failing to remember that God and His providence has me here. And if you can't be content here, being a poor college student with no car, 
then you're not going to be content making fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars a year on the beach. You're not going to be content. Have you been spending huge amounts of time thinking and worrying about your future? Maybe those questions are so perplexing because you've forgotten that right here, right now, you were meant to live for the glory of Christ. So, we've come to the end of the message. And it could have been a really short message. It hasn't been too long, I don't think. But I could have just come up here and asked the question, why do we have a vision and a mission statement? Because God has a vision and a mission statement. The end. Go home. Right? But I hope that you see that not only do we have a vision and a mission statement, but there is a point to the vision and a mission statement. Not only do we have one because God has one, hopefully our vision and mission statement, the vision and mission statement of Redeemer Church, lines up with God's vision and God's mission for all of creation. So my question that I want to leave us with is what is your vision? What is your mission? And does it line up with God's vision and God's mission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, making it so clear for us in the scriptures what the point of all of this is. Lord, it's so easy to get wrapped up in, in life and, and work and school and, and the things that we want that we forget the big picture. And Lord, I pray that these people in this room, or the people that you have brought to Redeemer Church, would be people that live with purpose. Your purpose. I pray that our lives would be marked by your glory. I pray that our lives would um, be transformed by the gospel so that we would be free to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That others would see that and hear that message and, and come and worship with us and join us in your purposes. Lord, forgive us where we have failed. And we are so quick to run uh, to the things that we want and the desires that we have. And, and we neglect, Father, to, to remember your grand design. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.